This is Audible. Hachette Audio presents Oberon, an Expanse novella. Written by James S.A. Corey. Read by Jefferson Mays. Oberon. The old man leaned back in his chair, ran his tongue over his teeth, then lit a fresh cigar. His left arm was a titanium and carbon fiber prosthetic, grafted deep into the bones of his shoulder, but his natural right arm was just as intimidating, scarred and pocked by decades of violence and abuse. His hair was a fluffy white fringe that cupped the back of his skull, and he wore a thin mustache, like it was a joke he was in on. All right, so we'll get a new governor who answers to a different boss, he said. It happens. Everyone's playing by the rules, and then something rolls through and changes them all. Things get scrambled for a while until everyone figures the new rules out. His second went by Agnet because it wasn't her name. She didn't roll her eyes. She was used to the old man getting poetic, especially when he was thinking something through. The fingers of his metal arm shifted unconsciously, the wrist curling in on itself the way the real one had back in the day. The office wasn't really an office at all. At the old man's level, business could be done anywhere, and he liked the little bar on the Zilferstraat Plaza with its wide-bladed ceiling fan and the smells of salt and sulfur coming off the bay. He claimed it reminded him of the kinds of holes and corners he'd grown up in back on Earth. Some days, people came to meet him there. Occasionally, he'd go out and sit with people in other parts of the city. Someone powerful needed a loan and couldn't get one. Someone needed a supply of agricultural chemicals or drugs, pornography or off-book sex workers, untraceable security teams or zero-day code exploits. Then, sooner or later, they came to the old man. The thing is, he said, you only have so long to figure out the new rules. That's what kills you. You've got to look at the situation like you're just coming into it. Because you are. And sure, maybe it's got the same street and the same people. That doesn't mean it's the same place. All the things you just take for granted about how it works are up for grabs again, and... Permission? He scowled, but he nodded her on. Boss, she said. We didn't just get a new governor. We got conquered. The old man grunted dismissively. He didn't like being interrupted. Agnet nodded toward the wall screen behind the bar. The news feed from Seoul had the Secretary General of Earth, the Speaker for the Martian Parliament, and the President of the Transport Union, the most powerful people among all the scattered human billions, being humiliated and brought to heel by the new order like the burghers of some half-raised medieval town. The combined fleet was in tatters, the void cities broken or occupied. Palace Station was reduced to pebbles and hot gas. Medina, at the heart of the gate network, taken over by the half-alien ships that had boiled out of Laconia system. The whole human orthodoxy overturned in what felt like a moment. 
High Consul Winston Duarte had named himself ruler of all humanity and had killed enough people to make it true. Emperor of the galaxy. This time is different, she said. The old man spat smoke and grunted again. The gate network had opened more than 1,300 solar systems to humanity, almost all of them with one or two or three planets in the Goldilocks zone. Under hundreds of suns, evolution had improvised new answers to the overwhelming question, what is life? With carbon and nitrogen, hydrogen and sunlight and time, the possibilities weren't limitless, but they were mind-boggling. The DNA and asymmetric chirality of organic life on Earth and its soul system colonies turned out to be idiosyncratic in a wide and creative universe. Even animals, shaped by the same selective pressures to look similar to Terran life, the grass trees of Baragaon, the hump-backed pigeons of Nova Brazil, the skinfish of New Eden, only needed a glimpse under a microscope to show they were as different from their Terran counterparts as a bull from a bicycle. A human being could eat all day and still starve to death in the great garden of Segurta, surrounded by bright fruits and soft vegetables, trees heavy with fat birds and rivers filled from bank to bank with things that almost passed for trout. The forest of life was varied and exotic, and the trees there didn't get along with each other. Or most of them didn't, anyway. At first glance, Oberon's system didn't seem exceptional. Three modest gas giants, none of them larger than Saturn. A single, wet, life-bearing planet with a large but unexceptional moon. There were no alien artifacts the way there had been in New Home and Corazon Sagrado. No weirdly pure ore profiles like on Illus or Persephone. Just a scattered handful of planets a couple of asteroid belts, and a star burning its slow way toward a billion-year distant collapse. Among the hundreds of systems to which humanity was heir, it could have been any place. But it was now the most important human system outside of Earth, Laconia, and maybe Baragaon complex. Only a few decades into its settlement, and it already boasted a dozen cities, each of them in the middle of built-up rural areas like the floral disk in the center of a daisy. There were six dwarf planets with mining and refining developments big enough to have permanent civilian populations growing around them. There was a transfer station built to accommodate the trade between it and the other less fortunate colony worlds. It was the second most developed human settlement in the universe and on track to keep growing for centuries. And the thing that made its first settlers the winners of history's land rush lottery was that, apart from competing for sunlight, the biosphere of Oberon barely interacted with the plants and animals of Earth. There was a famous image of an Earth apple tree and an Oberon native tree, their roots intertwined as if each were acting as soil for the other. That mutual biochemical shrug made open-air farming possible on Oberon. Contamination by local organisms tended not to mean more than a mild case of gas, and because it was the most habitable of the new planets by orders of magnitude, it was developed. Because it was developed, it was influential. Because it was influential, it was wealthy.
And because it was wealthy, it was corrupt. And now it was Biryar Rittenauer's problem. A woman's face appeared on his handheld. She had a prominent chin, long white hair and tight curls and a high forehead. Biryar tapped his fingers against his thigh. He should know this one, a face like a spade. A spade is a garden shovel. Shovel. Michel Chaval, he said, president of the Agricultural and Food Production Workers' Union. The handheld shifted to a young man's face, pleasant, neutral, with a mole at the side of his mouth that reminded Biryar of a cartoon rabbit. That was the image he'd built. Cartoon rabbit with a basketball. He knew it was the right image, but he couldn't make the jump to why he'd chosen it. Damn it, he said, and tapped the man's profile. His name was Augustin Belchek. He was the deputy minister in charge of planetary transportation security. Mona leaned over his chair, resting her chin on Biryar's shoulder. What was this one? she asked. He could smell the almonds on his wife's breath and feel the shifting of her jaw against his as she chewed. It was the third year of their marriage, and he had never stopped loving the smell of her skin close to his. A rabbit basketball player, he said. The mole was like a rabbit whisker. Belchek like Balchek. Also, traveling is a foul in basketball, and he's planetary transportation. Her sigh meant she was thinking. She pointed a thin, graceful finger at Deputy Minister Belchek's mole. He got that because the guy he was deep-throating had paving tar in his scrotum. Biryar coughed out something close to a laugh. That man's cheek is a ball check, she said, and the paving tar will remind you of the road system. Good Lord, are you always this obscene, Dr. Rittenauer? I'm not going to shake the man's hand while I imagine him having sex. If you don't like it, erase it from your memory and go back to the cartoon rabbit thing, she said. I don't think I'll be able to now. She tapped her forehead with the tip of her finger and she grinned. Which is my point. It works better if you commit to the process, she said. Then she kissed his ear. Biryar had 218 individuals and 53 organizations to commit to memory. More than any literal cartography, it was the map of the territory he was going to have to travel as the first Laconian governor of Oberon. He hadn't been surprised when Duarte had chosen him. He'd worked for the Empire since he was old enough to enter government service, excelled in his coursework, taken every initiative to rise among his peers. He had done his thesis on High Consul Duarte's early philosophical works and their relationship to examinations of grand strategy throughout human history. Oberon hadn't been a specific ambition of his, but a posting of importance to the Empire had been. Medina, or Baragaon, or Sol, a position in the High Consul's cabinet or teaching at the University on Laconia would have served his hopes as well. The reason he knew that he was in the cramped military cabin en route to a governor's mansion was Mona. Her small, round face and wide, dark eyes made her seem younger than she was and somehow elfin, but his wife was the best soil scientist of her generation. While he had been writing an academic love letter to the most powerful man in the empire, 
She had been mapping out paths to bring the thousand different biospheres into accord, to engineer everywhere what Oberon had happened onto by chance. Before she'd taken a single step under Oberon's sun or drawn a breath of its air, Mona understood the richness of its dirt and the potential that rested there. Her post would be at the Shitamyan Agricultural Concern in the capital city of Baradan, where the governor's office would be. Their skills and backgrounds were perfectly suited for the post. He could only hope that the millions of inhabitants of Oberon saw that too. He switched to the next image, a hard-faced woman with dark brown eyes. He didn't need a mnemonic device for her. Suyet Klinger was the Oberon representative of the Association of Worlds and one of the only people he would be ruling over that he'd actually met. He tapped to move to the next image, but the screen shifted on its own and a scheduled request took its place. He let a breath out between his teeth and rose from his crash couch. Mona popped another almond into her mouth and watched him walk the few steps to the cabin door. I'll be back, he said. She nodded and didn't speak. They were already in their breaking burn, the floor of the Nautis pushing up against them at almost half a G. It was a short walk to the meeting room where the head of his security, newly assigned from Medina Station and picked up on the way through the gate hub, was waiting for him. The relief Biryar felt at putting aside the memorization work was evidence that greater discipline was called for. He made a mental note to go back to it as soon as the meeting was done. Not because he wanted to, but because he didn't. And it was his duty. Major Overstreet was a thickly muscled man with pale skin and bright blue eyes that left him seeming eerily corpse-like. He'd served with honor and distinction most recently under Colonel Tanaka and then Governor Singh of Medina Station. And when Medina had faced its crisis, Major Overstreet had stepped in to prevent atrocities being carried out in the name of the Empire. He was a hero, and to be honored. But when Biryar sat across from him, the back of his neck itched a little and felt the shadow of the guillotine. Governor Rittenauer, Overstreet said, rising to his feet and saluting. Thank you for your time. Of course, Major. Thank you for your work. Their usual pleasantries. There was neither warmth nor animosity behind them. They were two people entirely defined by their former relationship, fellow cogs in the machine to which they were committed. It was comfortable. I've reviewed the report from the Association of Worlds, Overstreet said. There are some decisions that need to be made about your accommodations, and it would be useful to me to have some guidelines about your risk tolerance. What are we looking at? Overstreet pulled up a report and sent it to the wall screen. The format was familiar. Biryar had been reading and interpreting security reports for years, and usually for places he'd never physically been. He took in the slopes of Baradan's hills and the curve of its roads from a scattering of lines. The compounds that had been offered to him were marked in Laconian blue. He touched the northernmost. This has the fewest angles of approach, Biryar said. That's a fence? Decorative fence on a half-meter wall, easy to reinforce, but it's also the farthest from the Shitamyan campus here, Overstreet said, indicating the far side of the city. Which means the most exposure in transit for Dr. Rittenauer. 
Biryar leaned forward, considering the other options for his new home in this new light. What about this one? Open grounds, like most places in Baradan, and approachable from three directions. But we can build a wall. The structures are defensible, and it would minimize daily transit exposure. The potential for separatist violence had been proven on Medina and in a handful of the colony worlds. The enemies of Laconia and the High Consul were out there, and some would be on Oberon, in Baradan. Some would pass him in the streets, and he might not know them. And they would pass Mona as well. The one closest to Shitamyan will do, he said. And as soon as he said it, he felt a rightness in the choice. And there's no need to build any walls. Let's not establish our new administration by hiding in our shell like a turtle. Personnel and active security show more engagement and openness. Yes, Governor, Overstreet said with a bland smile as he collapsed the reports. The real protection wouldn't be walls and fences. It would be the narrative of power. The Tempest in Soul System was a massive deterrent, even though it was very far away. The Notus was smaller but close by, and Oberon's system didn't have the military power to deny it. There will be a reception after we arrive, Overstreet said. I'm coordinating with the local authorities. If you are satisfied with the security arrangements, please move forward, Biryar said, agreeing. I trust your judgment. It occurred to Biryar then that he'd just chosen the home he might spend the rest of his life in, based wholly on its abstract qualities, without knowing the color of the walls or the shapes of the windows. If he had, it wouldn't have changed anything. The Nautis was rated for atmosphere, so there was no reason to dock at the lunar station. There was a landing complex just east of the city designed to withstand the ship's drive plume until they switched to maneuvering thrusters and settled to the ground. With the turbulence of atmospheric passage and the vibration of the drive gone, there was nothing to drown out the soft ticking of the hull plates as they cooled. Biryar let the crash couch hold him up. The gravity of his new home planet pulled him gently into its cool blue gel. He had imagined this moment a thousand times. His arrival at his new post and the heroic, grave impression he wanted to give to the people who were now under his control. It was important that they should see him as something near the platonic ideal of a wise governor. Stern, merciful, wise. And he also wanted them to recognize his loyalty to the High Consul and Laconia as a model for them as an example to be followed. Now that the occasion was actually upon him, he was mostly aware of just how badly he needed to visit the head. He heard his cabin door open, and then the soft padding of feet on the deck. Mona smiled down at him. She had her formal dress folded over her arm, ready to be put on. It was high-waisted and high-collared with layers of lace and Laconian blue. She was dressing for this moment not in her role as soil scientist, but as the spouse of a governor. Her eyes betrayed only a little of her tiredness and anxiety. To anyone who didn't know her, not even that. Ready? she asked. Are you ready to take control of a planet? Are you ready to command the lives of millions of people and forge the most valuable planet in the greater human sphere into a tool that will, in time, 
feed trillions of people under a thousand different suns? He told himself that the flutter he felt in his stomach was excitement, not fear, never dismay. If she had been anyone else in all of humanity, he would have said, Yes, I am. But it was Mona, and so his true feelings were safe. I don't know. She kissed him, and the softness of her lips and the strength of them were a comfort and a promise. He felt his body starting to react to her and stepped back. Distracted and aroused was no way to start his tenure as governor. The millimeter lift of her eyebrows meant she understood everything he hadn't said. I'm just going over to my cabin to change, she said. That sounds wise. She took his hand, squeezed it. We're going to be fine, she said. Less than an hour later, he walked down the gantry and stepped for the first time onto the planet. His planet. From sunrise to sunset lasted a little over four standard hours on Oberon, with cycles of light and darkness changing only slightly with the seasons. By local convention, day was two cycles of light and one of darkness, night the reverse. Noontime on Oberon was always dark, and midnight was bright. It was mid-morning, but it looked like sunset. Red clouds high above them, and huge sessile organisms like trees or massive fungi lifted red streamers as if all the world were touched by fire. The small group that had been invited to greet him was, by definition, the most honored citizens of Oberon. The order in which he acknowledged them was important. The formality with which he held himself, whether he smiled or didn't when he shook their hands, everything mattered deeply. Because what High Consul Duarte was to the Empire, Biryar Rittenauer was to Oberon, beginning now. The streets of Baradan were narrower than the broad boulevards of Laconia, with buildings that crowded the pavement. Brick, the grey-green color of the local clay. The lights all glowed with the full spectrum of sunlight to say that this darkness was daytime and would become dimmer and warmer when consensus night came. Security forces with rifles and riot gear kept his path clear as he moved through the maze of intersections. If someone had planned the city, they'd done it with the aesthetics of an earthbound ghetto. More likely, Baradan had bloomed with no intention beyond satisfying the needs of the moment. Biryar traveled in an open car, the wind of his passage stirring his hair. Something smelled foul, like a sewer that had failed. Mona wrinkled her nose at it, too. Indol, she said. She saw the blankness of his response. Technically, two, three benzopyrrole, just a couple carbon rings and some nitrogen. The local biome really likes it. Nothing to worry about. It smells like... Shit. Yes, it does, Mona said. The soils team tells me we'll get used to it in a couple days. Well, elements are elements, and there's only so many things you can make with them, I suppose, he said. Some smell better than others. The compound was lit for noon when they pulled in. The house was shaped like a horseshoe, with pink stucco walls and polished metal sconces every few meters. Local insect analogues swarmed around the brightness. The courtyard in the center 
was paved in plates of carbon silicate lace, engineered to shine blue as a beetle's carapace. Starlight seemed to swim in its depths, reflections of the galactic disk overhead. The capital city of his planet didn't yet generate enough light pollution to drown the sky. The stars were the only things that reminded him of Laconia. His personal staff stood at attention beside the building's wide central doors. Laconian guards and local administrators, all in formal dress, all waiting for Major Overstreet's inspection before they met their new master. He was home now. For better or worse, this was his place in the universe, and might be for the rest of his career. Mona's sigh was barely audible, and he thought there was regret in it until she spoke. It's beautiful, she said. The reception began a few hours later. The sun was directly overhead in the second of the day's two brightnesses, and Biryar kept reflexively thinking of it as midday. He was impressed by the heat of the sunlight and the humidity of the air. Either the sewer stench had gone down with the rising sun, or he was already growing used to it. There were easily a hundred guests at the reception. Many of them were on the lists he'd committed to memory, but there were some others. A thin-faced woman with her hair in an elaborate plate, an older man with a thin mustache and a prosthetic arm, an agender person with a pinstriped linen suit and the studied respectability of a banker. Today was Oberon's first glimpse of what Laconian rule would mean, and the people, city, planet, and system were driven by their uncertainty and their fear. It was Biryar's duty to project calm and strength, the implacable authority of the new regime, and its geniality and benignity to those who gave it their undivided loyalty. He'd intended to wear a jacket, but he gave up the idea. He was happy to see that the guests had also chosen lighter shirts and soft, airy blouses. Mona's blue lace looked almost heavy by comparison, but she wore it with grace. She moved through the party as assured and confident as if they had lived in these rooms for years, not hours. She laughed easily and listened intently as she spoke to the man with the prosthetic arm. He felt the twinge of jealousy in his breast as a mixture of admiration, love, and exhaustion. As he moved among the guests, he found himself orbiting her, touching her arm as they passed, laying claim to her the same way he was laying claim to the world. The glitter of amusement in her eyes, invisible to anyone but him, meant she saw what he was doing, and that she forgave him his weakness, or that she enjoyed the power she had over him. They were two ways to the same thing. The first sign of trouble seemed so trivial that he didn't see its significance at all at the time. They were in a side garden where the local plants pushed their ruddy way up from a lawn of grass. A fig tree from earth had spread its limbs above a small carved stone table. The fruit was ripe to splitting and added a sweetness to the foul air. Mona was sitting across from a woman maybe twenty years older than either of them. The woman's graying hair was starting to escape an austere bun, and her cheeks were flushed from one drink too many. When he saw Mona's frown, 
Biryar stepped lightly over, ready to act as his wife's savior. He found he had misread the situation. We were so close, the older woman said. Six more months, and we could have cracked it. I swear to fucking God. Mona shook her head in sympathetic outrage. The older woman looked up at Biryar, a flash of annoyance at his interruption melting into embarrassment when she recognized him. Mona took his hand. Dear, this is Dr. Carmichael. I told you about her work on amino acid array translation. Biryar smiled and nodded as his mind churned. Carmichael. What was array translation? He'd known this one. He found it. Coaxing the local biology into growing something that can nourish us. Carmichael nodded a little too strongly. A lock of her hair escaped unnoticed and fanned out behind her head as if she were on the float. When she spoke, her voice was reedy, caught in the uncertain space between anger and whining. My funding was reallocated. They just took it away. I wouldn't pay the bribes, and so they said I was difficult to work with. That sounds distressing, Biryar said, putting sympathy in his tone while keeping it out of his word choice. It was, Carmichael said, nodding. Tears brightened her eyes. It was really distressing. That's exactly the word. Biryar nodded back, mirroring her. I will absolutely look into this, Mona said. Thank you, Dr. Rittenauer, Carmichael said, still nodding. We were so close. I can show you the data. Biryar smiled down at Mona. If that could wait until another time, there's someone I'd like you to meet, dear. Of course, Mona said, rising. She and Carmichael exchanged farewells, and Biryar steered her away into the house without any clear idea where he was going except out of the older woman's sight. It's early to be taking sides in local disputes, don't you think? He said as they walked. Mona looked at him. She was tired, too. Overstimulated and out of her element just as much as he was. When she spoke, she snapped. Her work is exactly what Oberon should be focused on. If she got sidelined because she wouldn't pay a bribe... Corruption is a problem here. We knew that, and we'll address it. Maybe this is an example, or maybe she just has a story that makes her feel better. Either way, please don't commit us to anything on the first day. It came out harder than he'd meant it. Worse, it came out patronizing. Mona's smile was warm and inauthentic, intended for onlookers and not for him. She squeezed his arm gently, bowed her head, and disengaged. He felt a little stab of distress. They should have put off the reception until they were both more rested. This was the kind of fight they only had when they were tired or hungry. They'd finish it in private if they had to. He didn't think it would amount to more than that. Still, he regretted it. The reception carried on through the remaining two hours of daylight and into the second sunset of the day. The light grew redder, and the crowd of people began to thin. Biryar went over his mental list of people he thought it was important to acknowledge. Aaron Glusthart, the forensic accountant with the Association of Worlds. Nyad Lee, the director of planetary logistics. Devi Ortiz, the minister of education. A dozen more. As the evening drew to its close, 
The irrational fear of introducing himself twice to the same person started to grow. He hadn't accomplished everything he'd hoped with the reception, but he knew himself well enough to recognize the point of diminishing returns. He remembered one of the High Consul's sayings, Overdoing is also falling short. Better to have a good night end well than push for perfect and undo what had been achieved. He'd woken on a ship under burn. He would sleep at the bottom of a gravity well. The thought was enough to make his limbs feel heavy. A glass of whiskey, maybe. A boiled egg with some pepper and salt. And sleep. He didn't notice quite how he found himself in the little drawing room that looked out over the courtyard. It was a cozy space, with a tall, thin window and chairs made of some thick, fibrous wood strung with raw silk. The floor was made with the same green-gray bricks he'd seen on the drive-in. A knotwork carpet commanded the center of the room. The older man with the prosthetic arm stood at the window, looking east toward where the sky was just fading from black to charcoal with the coming of the nighttime dawn, which put the hour near ten o'clock. Biryar was certain the man hadn't been in his briefings list. The arm, titanium fused to his living flesh, would have been hard to forget. But even without that, the face was striking. The man's skin was pale and papery, without seeming frail, only well lived in. A line of fluffy white hair ran from ear to nape to ear, leaving a wide, smooth scalp. A thin, white mustache. He wore tight black trousers and a pale shirt with an open collar. An unlit cigar was clamped in his lips. The one-armed man turned and nodded to Biryar as if he'd been expected. Turd of a planet, he said. It's home, though. I remember the first time I came down. I thought I was going to puke it smelled so bad. He lifted his cigar between a thumb and finger. It's when I started with these, just to kill off my sense of smell. But I do love it now. I'm looking forward to making it my home, too, Biryar said. I don't believe we've been introduced. Makes me think of the Raj, the one-armed man said, as if he hadn't heard Biryar. That was a weird thing, wasn't it? Dinky-ass little Britain using maybe a hundred thousand people to keep their boots on three hundred million necks? You can have the best guns ever and those odds still suck. No, I do not envy you. Not even a little bit. Biryar's smile went slightly tighter. Something about the moment felt off. I think your understanding of history leaves something to be desired. The man turned, pale eyebrows lifted. He shrugged his real shoulder. Maybe that part. There's other bits of history I know better. You ever hear the question, silver or lead? Biryar shook his head. I don't believe so. What's your name? Who are you with? My friends call me Eric, the one-armed man said, grinning. His teeth were the color of old ivory. So, anyway, there was this thing way back when. They used to have these huge recreational drug companies, totally illegal. And when someone new would come into town or get elected or whatever, the question was, silver or lead? Plata o plomo? Does the new sheriff in town take a bribe?
or a bullet. Hell of a slogan. It's simple, you know. Boils everything down. You have to admire that. Biryar's exhaustion fell away. His heart began to tap at his ribs, but he didn't feel panicked. His mind was cold and sharp, and he was suddenly very present. Are you threatening me? What? Jesus, no. We're just a couple guys talking history. The old man took something from his pocket. At first, Biryar thought he was going to light his cigar, but instead the old man placed the little device on the windowsill with a percussive tap. He stepped back from it. A small, black shape curved along one side. Biryar gestured to it with his chin, asking the question without speaking. It's a token for the local exchange network, the one-armed man said. It's tied to a private, anonymized account with about 15,000 new francs in it. That's enough to buy even someone like you a little privacy. For what? The man spread his hands. Whatever. I don't judge. Biryar stepped carefully to the window and picked up the token. The resin looked like smoky glass, obsidian. The old man smiled until Biryar dropped it to the floor, put his heel on it, and ground it against the brick. The one-armed man's eyes narrowed. The facade of good humor was gone, and Biryar knew he was facing a predator. Are you sure about that? the old man asked. Don't make me raise my voice. This is my house. There are a lot of armed people in the compound right now, Biryar said. The man smiled. There are. And some of them are probably pretty loyal to you. Others, maybe not as much. You a gambling man? In the window, the night's single swift dawn was already breaking. Blue sky and high, scudding clouds. The two men stood still as stone for three long breaths. Then the old man turned to the door and walked out. Biryar felt the shout swelling in his chest. He didn't let it out. He was shaking, trembling. He picked up the token. The resin was cloudy with scratches now, but he didn't know whether he'd managed to break whatever mechanism it contained. He told himself that he would not leave the room until he could gather himself again into the man he was supposed to be. He wouldn't rush out into the reception looking panicked. But then he thought of Mona earlier in the night, listening intently to the one-armed man, and he couldn't wait any longer. The one-armed man had vanished. Mona, sitting on a wide sofa with a gin and tonic in her hand, saw him and put her drink down. He hoped it was only the intimacy of their marriage that let her see his distress. When she came to him, he kissed her ear and whispered, Find our guards, the ones from the Nautis, not the locals. Stay with them. She pulled back, smiling like a mask. She spoke without moving her lips. Are we in danger? I don't know, he said. I'll find out. With Mona warned, he could move to offense. He summoned Major Overstreet to his private office. Sitting at the wide wooden table where he'd never sat before felt like being in a mousetrap. Overstreet stepped into the room and stood at attention. The only sign of fatigue was a slight darkness in the skin under his eyes, 
Sir? Biryar kept himself calm, or as calm as he could. When he got to the old man's threat, Overstreet became almost eerily still. When the full report was given, he put the token on the desk. Overstreet picked it up, considered it, and placed it back down. Biryar leaned forward in his chair. He hadn't said anything yet that the old man wouldn't have known from being present when it happened. That was about to change. How certain are you that our conversation here is private? Biryar asked. Overstreet hesitated. Then, an hour ago, I would have said I was certain, sir. Now, I'm less certain. The silence had weight. I think it would be very unfortunate to leave the compound so soon after arriving. I will visit the notice in the morning to finish clearing the diplomatic documents. We can have a conversation there. I will have Laconian guards stationed to assure your safety. And Dr. Rittenhouse. Yes, sir. And I will begin an investigation as to who this individual was at once, and who allowed him on the property. Thank you, Biryar said. This has to be our first priority now. Agreed, sir. I'll have a preliminary report ready before you reach the notice. And... Overstreet pressed his lips together and looked away. What's bothering you, Major? This was either an egregious failure on the part of the local forces or an outright subversion of security protocols. Either way, there will have to be consequences. Before I begin an investigation, it would be good to have some sense of how you would prefer to escalate this, should that be needed. It was a measure of how much the encounter had shaken him that Biryar hadn't considered this already. On Laconia, a breach of this magnitude would mean someone was executed at the least and more likely sent to the pens as a test subject. But on Laconia, a breach like this would never have happened. The first decision of his career would be whether to execute someone, and very possibly alienate the planet he'd come to preside over. And the decision was complicated by what had happened with Governor Singh on Medina. We both understand the dangers of overreach, Biryar said speaking the words gently, as if they were sharp. If the offending party is a native of Oberon, arrest them and turn them over to the local authorities. The processing of their case will need to be thoroughly and completely monitored. We will respect the laws here to the degree that we safely can. I won't escalate until Oberon's legal system has the chance to do this well. And if the issue began with us? Biryar smiled. That was easier. If a Laconian is responsible for breaking protocol and putting our administration at risk, either now or in the future, we will execute them publicly. Laconian standards are absolute. Understood, sir, Overstreet said, as if Biryar hadn't simply restated a policy that traced back over thousands of light years to the desk of High Consul Winston Duarte himself. Overstreet hesitated. Then... One thing, sir. Until this is addressed, I'd be more comfortable if you carried a sidearm. Biryar shook his head. It will be seen as a sign of fear. I trust your security force to make it unnecessary. I appreciate your confidence, but I'm asking you to do it anyway, Overstreet said. The man was in your house. Biryar sighed, then nodded his agreement. Overstreet left.
Mona was sitting on the edge of the bed when he reached her. Worry etched lines around her mouth, probably around his as well. What happened, she said. Is there a problem? The criminal element of Oberon is concerned by our arrival, as they should be, he said. There was a threat. We're looking into it. She pulled her knees up, hugging them to her chest, and looked out toward the windows. She looked lost and small. She was right to feel that way. They were one ship full of people to command a system of millions. Thick shutters were closed against the brightness of the too-fast sun and the heat and stench of the consensus midnight. A line of brightness showed the seam where they met. Biryar sat beside her. A dozen things came to mind that he might say to her. This is our duty. Or, some pushback had to be expected. Or, we will destroy them. He kissed her shoulder. I won't let anyone hurt us. Agnet scratched her chin to make it seem more like she was thinking and less like she was struggling to keep her temper. The old man sat at the breakfast bar. His bathrobe was a gray that could have been any other color before it faded. His fake arm was going through its diagnostic reboot, shivering and twitching. The old man did it every day, even though the documentation said it was a once-a-month thing. The speed and violence of the reboot sequence made her think of insects. When her outrage had subsided enough that she could be polite, she said, That was a move, boss. Not sure I would have done that. It was a risk, he said dismissively. But whatever his tone, he wasn't at the Zilferstraat bar. Just the fact that he'd started moving his meeting places said he was taking the situation seriously. She didn't know whether she felt worse because of the new level of threat, or better because he knew it was a problem, even if he wouldn't say it out loud. They were sitting in an apartment over a noodle bar. It wasn't quite a bolt hole, although the old man had a few of those around the city and around the planet, and probably some she didn't know about. The light of afternoon dawn slanted in the clerestory windows, tracking down the far wall quickly enough to follow it if she was patient. She wasn't. The old man poured ouzo over ice with his real arm, the liquor going cloudy as it filled the glass. This new governor's going to fuck us up now, isn't he? she asked. The old man didn't answer at once. His fake arm was almost done with its reboot. He used it to pick up the glass, and it seemed all right. Steady. He sipped his drink. He's going to have to try. That's his job. It's still our home pitch, though. How hard is this going to be? She asked. Her irritation was already fading, and her mind was turning toward what needed to happen next. Planning for violence. When the old man spoke, his tone was lighter than she'd expected. I don't know. He's a tight ass, this one. I mean, it seems like these Laconians all are. Not a big surprise. You take a bunch of Martian Congressional Republic fanatics and interbreed them for a few decades, it's not going to tend toward a greater mental flexibility. I've got a few ears in place. We'll see how he reacts. Electronic? Nope. Just people who like gossip and drinking. They'll do. The old man ran a metal finger around the rim of his glass. 
his mouth pulled into something that was almost a smile. This guy, he's hungry. I just don't know what for yet. Does it matter? He drank down the rest of the ouzo in a gulp. Of course it matters. Hungry pays our bills. No, I mean, why do we care what he wants or needs when we're going to kill him? Sure, maybe he'd look the other way if we got him a lot of exotic talcum powder and a bottle of whiskey, but that's not going to matter much when he's dead. The old man shook his head slowly. I'm not killing him. Not yet, anyway. We start knocking off governors, maybe we get a little time to breathe before the next guy comes, but the next guy is going to be even more of a shithead. Better if I figure this guy out. Permission? Agnet said. The old man waved his metal hand in a slow circle, inviting her to speak her mind. You already made the call, she said. He joins up by taking the bribe, or he turns it down and we kill him. He turned it down, so now we kill him. Those are the rules. The old man scratched at his hairy, white chest. Outside the window, a local pigeon, six compound eyes and bat wings covered with feathery cilia, landed, chittered, and flew off again. The old man smiled after it, as if the interruption had broken his train of thought. When he spoke, she knew it hadn't, and that the conversation was over. The rules, he said, are what I say they are. Mona Rittenauer's office was on the top floor of the northwest corner of the Shi Tamyan building. It was twice as large as her cabin on the notice had been, with intelligent glass from floor to ceiling that not only adjusted the level of light as Oberon's sun sped across its wide blue sky, but corrected the color to give the landscape below her a sense of greater constancy. She knew from her briefing that the illusion was supposed to make the transition to Oberon's unfamiliar daily cycle easier, but after the first few days, she disabled the feature. She wanted to see the world around her as it was. Dr. Rittenauer, a woman's voice said from the doorway, and then, belatedly, a soft knock. You wanted to see me? Veronica Dietz was her liaison with the work groups. Mona had been coming to the office for a week now, and apart from being the living symbol of how anxious Shi Tamyan agricultural concern was to have a solid relationship with the new Laconian government, her role in the research had been nebulous. She was ready to define it. Yes, Mona said. I heard about some research on amino acid array translation. I'd like to see the records on that. I don't think it's a live work group, Veronica said. We had some preliminary work a few years back, but the powers that be thought the microbiota compatibility work had more potential. I understand, Mona said with a smile. Just bring me what you have on array translation. It doesn't need to be complete. You got it. Anything else? Not for now, Mona said, and Veronica vanished back behind the door. Dr. Carmichael's tipsy, weeping voice had stuck with Mona since the reception. Biryar was focused on the incident, the threat, whatever euphemism he and Overstreet were using for it. The criminals and terrorists who saw Laconia as something that could or ought to be resisted. That they'd made a threat on the same day the Nottis arrived bothered her, but she couldn't do anything about it directly. This she could. 
The records appeared on her system a few minutes later with a tagged note from Veronica offering to bring in some tea and one of the apple pastries from the break room. Mona thanked her in text, but turned the offer down. Veronica's job required that she be solicitous and friendly, but it didn't cost Mona anything to treat her nicely. The records of Dr. Carmichael's work were preliminary, as Mona expected. They also weren't quite as impressive as she'd been led to believe. There was good, solid work in it, though. If it had been done on Laconia, Carmichael would have had more tools for the experiments. And she might still, if Mona pushed to have her transferred back home. It tickled her a little, the prospect of swooping in and rescuing a languishing career just because she could. The microbiota compatibility workgroup that had been funded instead was headed by a broad-faced man with brown eyes and hair as thin as mist. Dr. Grover Balakrishnan, previously from Ganymede, one of the oldest and most respected agricultural centers in Seoul System. His plan was essentially harnessing evolutionary pressure to develop soils that supported both Seoul and Oberon trees of life, start a few hundred samples of mixed microbes, then part out the most successful ones, iterate a few dozen times, and let selective pressure do the work. It was sloppy, and to her eyes, less likely to get replicable results than Dr. Carmichael's work. That didn't mean that there had really been a conspiracy to quash the Array Translation Project. It might just have been a bad decision. She went back to look at the funding committee reports. It took her most of the morning and well into the midday darkness before she found the smoking gun. Deep in the patent payment agreement that covered any products derived from the microbiota compatibility studies, a new name appeared. Only, it wasn't really new at all. V. Dietz. Veronica. Mona went through all of the present work groups, and again and again, all through the studies, it appeared. Whatever discoveries Shi Tamyan made in their facilities on Oberon, Veronica Dietz was contractually entitled to a cut. Each one was small, but taken together they would be enough to make her fantastically wealthy. People had been murdered for much less money than her liaison made in a month, and that was before her salary. Mona went through again, this time looking for the justification for the payments, some service that Veronica did for the researchers that made the payments make sense. There was nothing apart from the inescapable conclusion that if anyone was going to make anything, Veronica Dietz got a slice. When her system chimed, she flinched. Veronica's voice came from the speaker, as friendly and casual as ever. It was only the intensity with which Mona listened that made it seem fake as a carnival mask. Hey, Dr. Rittenauer, I'm heading down to the commissary. Do you want me to get you anything? The steadiness of Mona's voice surprised her. She would have thought that something would make it tremble. Surprise, fear, anger. But she only said, No, I'm fine, and let the connection drop. Biryar had only ever been to two executions. The first time, he had been a child, and Laconia had still been more wilderness than civilization. One of the soldiers who had come with the First Fleet had been careless in his driving, maybe even intoxicated, 
It was hard to remember the details now. A boy from the original scientific expedition had been struck and killed. Duarte himself had overseen the punishment, and attendance at the death had been mandatory. Before they killed the man, Duarte had explained that discipline was critical for them all. They were a small force in a single system, with no influx of immigration to draw from. It had seemed a strange argument at the time. If people were so rare and precious, killing one seemed wasteful. Later, he understood that the preciousness was what made the sacrifice profound. The soldier had died quickly, and while it didn't undo the man's crime, it showed the members of the civilian scientific expedition that Duarte and his followers valued their lives and the lives of their children. If the driver had lived, bringing the two populations together would have been difficult or impossible. The second time, it had been a young construction worker in the capital who used the wrong proportions when mixing concrete for the foundations of one of the buildings. No one had died, but the error, if it hadn't been found, could have led to hundreds of deaths when the structure collapsed. Duarte had held a ceremony, again mandatory, so that everyone could understand the severity of the problem and the sorrow with which the young woman was being sent to the pens. Biryar hadn't watched her die, but he still remembered her tear-streaked face as she made her apology to the community. Laconia had always been the few and the pure against the many and the corrupt. Like the Spartans from whom they took their name, Laconians were severe within their group, both to forge the iron discipline that had led them to victory and to demonstrate to others the sincerity of their beliefs. It was hard, but it was necessary. Now the Laconians present in the courtyard stood at attention, representing the empire and its uncompromising resolve. Biryar had his place of honor at the front of the assembly. I apologize, the prisoner said, for the shame I brought on my companions, and for the wrong I have done to my commander and the high consul. The sunlight hurt Biryar's eyes, and a thin film of sweat stuck his shirt to his back. The pistol felt heavy, the holster like someone constantly tapping his hip for attention. There were more locals in attendance than he'd expected. Some were employees of the local newsfeeds, but many of them had come as sightseers and tourists, drawn by the spectacle of punishment the way they would be to a sporting event. The prisoner, an ensign assigned to logistics and supply, had given a pharmaceutical printer and two boxes of reagents from the Notice's medical supplies to a local criminal to produce untaxed recreational drugs. The local buyer was in an Oberon-administered prison and faced two years' confinement if she was convicted. The trial was apparently a lengthy process. The Laconian side of the theft would be dead before Biryar ate dinner. The prisoner hung his head. A guard led him up the steps to the little platform. The prisoner knelt. Biryar's nose had grown mostly insensible to the sewer smell of Oberon, but a particularly strong whiff of it came on the breeze. It felt like a comment. Tradition, such as it was, allowed anyone higher in the chain of command to give the order, but symbolically, Biryar knew it had to be him. 
the prisoner's commanding officer, a woman Biryar had known peripherally for almost a decade, stood on the platform with a sidearm at the ready. Biryar stepped forward to the sound of a single dry drum, met her gaze, and nodded. He half expected tears to glisten in her eyes, but her expression was blank. After a moment, she nodded in return, pivoted, and fired a single round into the back of the prisoner's head. The sound was weirdly flat. The drum stopped, and a medic came out to certify the death. And it was over. Biryar turned to the cameras of the local news feeds, careful to present his better profile. The crowd looked shocked. That was good. State violence was meant to be shocking. It was done to prove a point, and it would have been a pity for the sacrifice not to have its effect. He paused long enough to be sure that they'd all gotten a good image of him for the feeds, then turned toward the Laconian contingent. He wanted to go back to his office, get a cold gin and tonic, and close his eyes until his head stopped aching. Most of the people in Laconian Blue had come with him on the notice, but Suyet Klinger, the local representative of the Association of Worlds, and her staff had also chosen clothes that echoed Biryar's uniform. Blue, almost the right shade, and tailored in a similar cut. Not Laconian uniforms, but something that rhymed with them. Her face, as he stepped to her, was grave. I'm very sorry, sir, she said. I'm sure that was very difficult for you. He knew what he was supposed to say. Discipline is the policy of the High Council. It should have been easy. But the words that came to his mind were, Why are you sure? Klinger knew nothing about him but what she'd been told by Laconia. She would have been just as solicitous to anyone who had come in his position. And if someone else had been in her role, he would have treated them the same way he did her. They weren't people to each other. They were roles. This was etiquette. And the inauthenticity of the situation oppressed him. He nodded to her. Discipline is the policy of the High Consul, he said and she averted her gaze in respect. The forms were there to be followed. He moved through the grim crowd, acknowledging each of them and being acknowledged. Form. It was all just keeping form. The shadows shifted around them as the sun raced for the horizon and left him feeling like he'd been there for hours. But there were more nods to exchange, more words to mouth, the dead man was hauled away to the recyclers, and the medics retreated. It was strange, and in a way unfair, that the local thief would live and might even go free. Being Laconian meant being held to a higher standard, and so transgression against that standard required a higher response. But it still bothered him. Or at least it did for the moment. If he could get some rest and a decent meal... It might not. The faces in the group began to blend together, one following another, following another, until he didn't know or care who he was speaking to. He came to a man he hadn't met in person before, with brown hair, a serious expression, and a mole on his cheek like a dot of paving tar. Biryar almost pulled away, 
shocked by the sudden visceral image of how the fleck of tar had gotten there, and then felt amused and even strangely pleased. Deputy Bailcheck, Biryar said. Good to finally meet you. Bailcheck's eyes widened a fraction. The surprise at being recognized melted quickly into a smile as they shook hands, and then Biryar moved on. From the other man's point of view, it had been a gratifying moment that showed his importance to the new governor. Functionally, it was an example of building the kind of good relations with the local authority that would cement Laconian rule on Oberon. It was also a smutty joke with his wife, and that was a fact Biryar would keep entirely private, at least until he was alone with Mona. It works better when you commit to the process, she'd said. He had to commit to the process of governing Oberon, even the parts that he found difficult, especially to those parts. A car waited for him at the edge of the courtyard, ready to take him back to his offices. When he ducked into it, Major Overstreet followed and sat across from him, his pale, bald face shone with sweat. How are you doing, sir? Fine, Biryar said. A bit of a headache. The stutter, Overstreet said. The what? The car pulled away, and cool air, as fresh as if it came from the Nottis's recyclers, touched his face and filled his nose. He noticed the absence of Oberon's stench and dreaded the end of the ride when he'd step back into it. It made more sense to keep exposing himself to the foul air. Breaks from it like this could only prolong his acclamation. They call it the stutter, sir. It's common among new arrivals. The four-hour cycles don't sync well with normal circadian cues. Irritability, headache. Some people get vertigo after about a month that clears in a few days. It's just our brains learning the new environment. Good to know, Biryar said. Is it bothering you? Yes, sir, it is, Overstreet said. I'm looking forward to it being over. The growing twilight in the streets was the real one. The end of the day and the beginning of evening. If he did it right, Biryar hoped to be asleep before the nighttime dawn. If he could just sleep through and give his body the impression of a full twelve hours of darkness. The longing for rest surprised him. Maybe he was more tired than he knew. What progress have you made on that other investigation? Biryar asked. The man with the metal arm, Overstreet said, making the words like the heading on a report. Neither a question nor a statement, but a tag that identified the content to follow. He is a known figure in the local criminal demimonde. He goes by several names, but he has no entry in the law enforcement systems. He has no accounts on the exchanges, though given the token he tried to bribe you with, it's safe to assume he has significant access to untraceable funds. Where did he come from? There aren't any records of his arrival in the databases. So he grew out of the dirt? Biryar said more sharply than he'd meant to. Overstreet shrugged. I'm moving forward with the assumption that the local databases are at least inaccurate and more likely suffering ongoing compromises. Biryar leaned back in his seat. A group of young men were playing football in the street, and the security detail was yelling at them to move off and let the cars through. Biryar watched them, long-limbed, lanky young men, maybe belters, maybe just adolescents. 
Any of them could be a separatist terrorist. All of them could be. For a moment, it felt like madness to be on the planetary surface at all. There was no safety here. There couldn't be. He's not a criminal mastermind, Overstreet said as the car started forward again. He's just got a head start. We will track him down. Don't turn this one over to the local police. He should be our guest until we can fully understand how he got past our security arrangements. I understand, Overstreet said. No formal arrest, then? Once he's helped with our security review, we can revisit the issue, Biryar said. And then, a moment later, he was talking with my wife. Yes, sir. I understand. The compound was well guarded now. Laconian marines in powered armor stood like sentries at the approaches and on the roofs. He lost something by having them there. Duarte's rule through him should have been inevitable and confident. A standing guard made him seem concerned, and concern made him look weak. But he couldn't bring himself to dismiss them or release them to other duty. As he stepped into the private rooms, he unbuttoned his collar. In the time since they'd arrived, Biryar had made some changes to the governor's compound. He hadn't brought many things from their old home on Laconia, but what there was had pride of place. The picture of Mona receiving her Laconian Distinguished Service Award framed on the front wall where the light caught it. The clay sculpture she'd given him as a wedding gift. A calligraphic print of one of High Consul Duarte's sayings Effort in discipline, effortless in virtue, in gold leaf. Everything else in the rooms was foreign. The fluted wall sconces with different spectrums of light for daytime darkness and night. The grain of the false wood paneling made from the tree-like organisms of Oberon to mimic the trees of Earth. Neither one was his home. It felt like the room itself was telling him that he didn't belong, like it was pushing him away. He was sure that, with time, the sensation would pass. He stretched. The knot between his shoulders appeared to be there permanently now, like the grit in his eyelids. The door behind him opened with a click, and Mona's footsteps, as familiar and unmistakable as her voice, followed. He looked over at her, and his heart sank to his gut. What's wrong? he asked. She dropped into a cushioned chair and shook her head. A small, tight, unconscious gesture he'd seen before. Anger, then. Well, better that than fear. He went to sit near her, but didn't touch her. Her rage didn't respond well to physical comfort. This place is rotten, she said. Shitamyan has a scam going on in it that has profoundly compromised its research priorities for years. Years. Maybe since they came here. Tell me, Biryar said. She did. Not only the way her liaison had added herself to the patent agreements, but that she was married to the Union Comptroller, that she had gotten the placement in Mona's office over several other more qualified applicants, that her reported income didn't remotely match the payments made to her. With every sentence, Mona's voice grew harder, the outrage rising the more she thought about it. Biryar listened, leaning forward with his hands clasped and his gaze on her. Every new detail felt like a weight on his chest. Corruption layered on corruption layered on corruption until it seemed like there was more disease than health. 
And, Mona said, reaching her crescendo, either management and the union didn't know, in which case they're incompetent, or they did and they're complicit. Biryar lowered his head, letting it all settle. Mona's gaze was fixed on nothing, her head shaking a fraction of a centimeter back and forth like she was scolding someone in her imagination. She probably was. There was a soft knock at the door, one of the housekeepers hoping to sweep or change their bedding. Biryar told them to come back later and got a muttered apology in return. Mona hadn't even noticed. He risked taking her hand. That is disappointing, he said. We have to fix it, she said. This can't be permitted. This scam has cost years. Veronica has to be arrested and removed. The union has to be investigated and purged. I don't know how deep this goes. I will bring this to the attention of the local magistrates, Biryar said. We'll address it. Magistrates? No, we need to go now and arrest her, ourselves. She's undermining the most important colony world that there is. You're the governor. I understand that. I do. But if what she's done is illegal under Oberon's law, then it's a matter for the local courts. If I step in, I have to step very carefully. Mona drew back her hand. The weight in Biryar's gut grew heavier. The knot in his back ached. He pressed his lips thin and went on. I am building on fear and hope, he said. Fear of the tempest and the typhoon and hope that they won't come. Our best path is to be seen as all-powerful but benevolent, even indulgent. When we have a larger fleet, more experience, loyalty among the local police and military forces, then we can enforce our ways here. We're still in our first days. I have to be careful not to overreach. Disappointment changed the shape of Mona's eyes. It softened her mouth. He felt the apology at the back of his throat. But it would have sounded like he was sorry for not giving her what she wanted, and he would mean he was sorry that the situation was what it was. If the payments to her don't really go to her, Mona said, what if her income report is accurate? She could be part of a crime syndicate. That man who was here, with the arm, she could be working for him. And I will have our people look into that. If she is, we'll take action. We should be taking action anyway. Mona said. I'm Laconia's eyes on the most significant agricultural research that there is. You're the governor of the planet. If we aren't doing something, why are we here? Please lower your voice. Don't patronize me, Biryar. It's a real question. We're staying alive, Mona, he snapped. We are picking our fights. We're identifying the most immediate threats and addressing them. And we are doing everything possible to give the impression that we could bring overwhelming power to bear and merely choose not to. Because that isn't true, Mona said. It will be. Given time to establish ourselves, we can dominate any system, but we can't dominate all of them at once. So this is how we govern. We are present. We exert influence, we exercise power when we have to, and we graciously allow self-rule until another option exists for us. Self-rule, Mona said, and her voice could cut skin. Duarte sent us here so we could see the situation firsthand and react to it. How is the two of us doing nothing self-rule? Self-rule for them, Biryar said. 
not for us.